Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Letter Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos's book, The Underground is Massive How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Letter Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss Daft Punk's breakthrough performance at Coachella 2006 and the beginning of EDM's belated rise to the top of American pop. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. Now we're all the way up to the Conquered America part. Coachella, April 29th through 30th, 2006. Ryan, this is the big one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the beginning of the beginning. Or, you know, this episode is like that saying, it's always darkest before the dawn. So it's just a swirl of all the bad stuff that's going on, like the economic downturn after 9-11, the surveillance state booting up and the government cracking down, traditional in- music industry just, just, just crap in the bed and rave just being wildly uncool to the general population. But amidst all that, you have little signs of what's to come with French touch and electro infecting indie rock, Steve Aoki pushing that rock rave fusion. And uh, yeah, at the beginning of everything suddenly percolating and getting very interesting. Yep. And he's got this quote at the beginning of the chapter. This one's from Tobias C. Van Veen. Dance Cult Volume 2, number 1, 2011, says, The U.S. lost something with 9-11. The total expression of a generation silenced off the airwaves, policed and beaten down, denied even the nostalgia granted to punk. Rave culture was not only underground, it has now been buried in the U.S. as if it never existed, as if the blurring of gender and color and dance never happened. Kind of a downer there, Mr. Van Veen, but... And kind of late, 2011, I mean, things were actually coming back by then, or was it just that rave culture didn't come back when EDM became popular? Well, I feel like this must be part of like a bit of a retrospective of of kind of how things built up. And, and, you know, I I do want to say I used to really hate the perception that 2000 to 2006 was like the dark ages of rave and dance music because those were the key years I was most active in the rave scene. And let me confirm that there were many pockets of underground rave going hard and big at this time, but... 
every one of those had to be built from the ground up by true believers who had to like proselytize and convert and build their own damn scene or it just wouldn't exist. And when I started throwing parties in 98, there was like a general rule of thumb where if you distributed like a thousand flyers properly, you would get a hundred people per thousand flyers. You could draw that from the general population because rave was mysterious and cool and people wanted to check it out. But by like 2001 onwards, it changed trying to bring new people en masse was a fool's errand and you basically were stuck tapping into the existing pool of ravers for whatever genre you repped uh, genre you were repping if it was trance or hardcore jungle or techno and and that was it there was there there was very little expansion it was very much a bust scene because people had heard you were into it and was just chasing people away oh <laughs> just kidding <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i mean like it was a bunch of it was it was kind of nice because you know it was it was the outsiders and the weirdos that stuck around with it and i think we were the ones that were the most upset you know when everything kind of changed in 2006 to 2010 with edm because all of a sudden the popular kids came back and took it so you know there's still a lot of people who are sore about that They'll do that. I'm still sore about what they did to the punk scene, but you know, that's, that's, these things happen, but let's get to the book. Starts out with an opening section. That's kind of just a roundup of crappy things that are going on in this period. Uh, it talks about Joe Biden's attempt to pass the rave act, which would have extended crack house laws to ecstasy MDMA and also dance promoters with fines up to $250,000 and up to 20 years in prison time. And that's for promoting a show at which anybody used ecstasy or sold ecstasy or bought ecstasy. Nothing to do with you. This is just criminalizing uh, music promotion. It lost two sponsors and they had to table it, but then it comes right back in a couple of years. Uh, in April 2003, they passed Biden's Illicit Drug Anti-Proliferation Act of 2003, which is essentially the same stuff, but they tacked it onto an Amber Alert bill, and it passed. So, yucky, yuck, yuck. Although there was a phenomenon around this time where LSD usage dropped dramatically. Um, it says, Mato cites a survey that said LSD usage in U.S. high schools dropped to less of one-third of 2001 levels in 2002. And theories I've read in other places were that the big manufacturers and dealers of LSD who had been supplying the Grateful Dead touring, um, you know, the Grateful Dead tours, the audience of the Grateful Dead tours were busted around this time. I think one of them was running a massive lab in a, in a converted missile silo in Kansas that they had purchased from the government. Um, and, and it got busted. But I think that was a temporarily, temporary thing. It wasn't like a long-term sustained decline in the popularity or availability of hallucinogenics or other illicit drugs. Um, so it wasn't a shift in the, in the culture. It was more just a, an availability issue that was soon remedied. Yeah, yeah, it was a downside of monopolies. You see, when you get to one vendor that gets too powerful, it's easy to take them out. So hopefully, we've learned and have a more robust marketplace or something. I don't know. I'm not for or against these things. I'm just describing what happened. In that same section, talks about how record stores are closing. Mentions Groove Records in Brooklyn. Adam X's Groove Records was closed in October 2004. It talks about the Electric Daisy Carnival Number no. Six, which was in Long Island, June 28, 2002. That's our old friend Pasquale Rotella that we've talked about in the context of L.A. numerous times. That drew 6,000 people. 
Um, but his main promotion around this time had been Nocturnal Wonderland, which actually lost money in 2001. So things are things are kind of rough. Disco Donnie himself moves away from New Orleans, follows his wife to college in Columbus, Ohio. So he starts promoting much smaller shows in Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland on a little circuit. And then the next section is kind of a sad one of about Eminem, the hip-hop star, picking on Moby at MTV Awards and in his songs and on stage. Well, to be fair, Moby started it. it. It's true. Moby was lecturing him about misogyny and homophobia, and then Eminem wasn't having it. Uh, he turned his sights from Fred Durst over to Moby and, um, you know, had that it's over. Nobody listens to techno uh, stanza in without me that, that, that had to hurt. Uh, you know, that was one of the most sampled lyrics in dance music for years after that because – I mean, I feel, I feel like the book captured this as well, where they were kind of joking about the fact that obviously tons of people listen to techno, but it was the general mainstream attitude that it was over and it wasn't cool. But man, there was nothing nothing better than taking that lyric and hearing it over like a like a techno track in the middle of the night. It was just it was just it was just funny. <laughs> so the the scene abides. The scene will scene will make it through, and then and then we change uh, gears. He takes us uh, from he stops in at Williamsburg, where we spent the last chapter talking about Electro Clash, by way of Richie Houghton, aka Plastic Man, many other monikers. So Richie Houghton has moved to Williamsburg in 2002. He's doing DJ events. Um, including at the Anchorage, which was a cavity under the Brooklyn Bridge that got shut down after 9/11, but. And so I guess he was doing that before he moved to town. He had been stopping in and playing there. Then he moved to town. Anyway, it's a bummer, and he moves to Berlin in 2003. And Berlin has become this magnet for techno and, and house DJs all around the world through this period because the Germans spent a fortune in the 90s rebuilding it. They were planning for it to be uh, this economic powerhouse that took a little time to start. And so Berlin was very, very cheap in the 2000s. And lots of people were coming to town. Plus, they loved Glitch. They're, quote, they were in love with the American laptop guys because to them it was real. Can you explain that the meaning of that quote from Matos there to me? I guess it's just more that there's a sophisticated element uh, or they saw themselves as more sophisticated. They didn't need the DJs to be on turntables for them to consider it real music. Uh, there's always a bit of snobbery when it comes to DJing and DJing with anything other than than vinyl. And I guess uh, in, in Berlin, uh, it was just much more accepted and people didn't get so far up their own asses. They were, they were up their own ass in a different way and they were perfectly fine with these laptop DJs, whereas in other areas, it was still like you show up with anything other than records and people are liable to call you a fake. I see. But in Berlin, it was real because they weren't technophobic, but technophiles. And the dancing moves to the Friedrichshain Kreuzberg area along the River Spray, where clubs like Bergain and Panorama Bar spring up, which are also linked to a gay sex club, which keeping in the dance tradition, got the gay sex club, got a house club, got a techno club, all right there in one building. But the music shifts. It's no longer Tresor-style bangers and love parade trance. Now it's micro house. You know, and this is the perfect time to bring in our first track. Uh, when we're talking micro house, Ricardo Villalobos was one of the key guys that kind of kicked it all off. And uh, this is his track, Frank Mueller Melodram from 1999.
And that was Frank Mueller Melodram by Ricardo Villalobos. You know, I never appreciated how difficult it is to uh, to say all these artist names properly under pressure. So my hat's off to you, Nate, for normally doing that. And uh, yeah, that's a that's an early 1999 representation of kind of uh, the, the the minimal glitchy micro house techno sound that was going that was getting big in Berlin. And how is this different than minimal techno, like the stuff that Robert Hood or Dan Bell had been doing a few years ago? I mean, it all kind of meets together. Micro House is just kind of the new label that they had at first. I feel like uh, minimal techno was kind of owned by Detroit guys like like Robert Hood, and then you know they they needed something that was a bit of a of a of a distinguisher as far as name goes, and you know as it goes, uh, it was a a magazine editor that named this, so it had nothing really to do with what was going on on the ground because Richie Houghton and uh, Villa Lobos they they all considered themselves to just be in the tradition of of minimal techno in general, so the the micro house label just kind of came on and captured that time frame in Berlin, you know, where people were adding uh, extra glitch to it and, you know, weird digestive noises and the sound of a ping pong ball falling downstairs with godlike production on the reverb. Uh, so, but it was all, yeah, basically captured under minimal. And so Philip Sherburn and The Wire in July 2001 is the guy who was to blame for this nomenclature. And his quote, I love this quote, it, that Microhouse retained house music's essentially fe- essential features, especially its kick drum and offbeat hi-hat, while all the fat fell away from their hips and jutting collarbones, spawning a sound that wasn't so much emaciated as supple and lithe. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah, I find minimal at its best is like uh, very, very simplified with like one or two themes that that's just like honed, honed properly. Of course, then there's then there's a whole bunch of junk that has no hook and it has no kind of interesting, interesting thing to hang your hat on. And that's maybe the majority of what's being made. But at, at its best, that's a good description. Yeah, I found Matos's playlists and um, and uh, his his full set recommendations to be very helpful for this because micro house along with intelligent techno or intelligent dance music and, and intelligent drum and bass and minimal techno can be a snooze if not, um, you know, uh, curated well. And so the mixography in the underground is massive. I, I found really helpful to sort of pull out the more interesting stuff and, and, Kind of once my mind was open to it, then I could venture into random lists off of YouTube or Spotify or whatever of, of Microhouse and explore it a little on my own and, and found it not quite as dire as I, I thought it was. But listen to these price differences for what it costs to live in Berlin. A Berlin apartment in 2006 was 200 to 400 euros a month. That's 275 to 550 a month at the exchange rates that we had then. And that's like a half to a quarter of what rent for a comparable apartment will cost you in New York. So it created this phenomenon where, quote, by 2006, it was expected that all U.S. DJs and producers who were making a splash either moved to Berlin or endured endless questions about when they planned to move to Berlin. So Berlin has, once again, uh, it's this international safe havens for creative people who can't make a living in their home base and have to have to relocate. 
Yeah, Berlin was definitely bopping. There was so much good music coming out of Germany, and it was all a real melting pot of sounds because this chapter focuses on some of the stuffier sounds like minimal and micro house. But don't forget, there was a lot of really fun electro and electro tech being made by people like DJ Hell, Westbam, Baroshima, like a whole bunch. 2003 was also when Tech Trance really exploded with Ferry Corsten's Right of Way album. And all of it was getting mixed together to create this exciting party vibe. Yeah, and, and I think he covered a lot of that stuff last time and and so um you know it's hard to cover all the different things that are going on and then we get back to richie houghton who um puts out his closer album by classic man in 2003 plays the mutec festival in montreal attempts a full-on live classic man show and invests quite a bit of time and money into the audio visual or the visual aspects of it but it's not quite there yet and so it ends up kind of being a missed opportunity or just isn't this time and he also grows his hair out so the famously shaved head richie houghton suddenly grows his hair out to be more like uh, what we know now or the look that's been familiar for the past 20 years um in berlin he's hanging out with his old buddy Sven Vath in berlin and it's nice to read about Sven Vath without the bashing that reynolds would always feel compliant compelled to, to throw in um but he's also hanging out with ricardo villalobos like you said and Matos credits Villalobos with helping shift Berlin's club sound from bare but blooming microhouse to something tougher and itchier, typically dubbed minimal or MNML for the internet for the Google searching. So minimal as opposed to minimal techno. Is that correct? This is a distinct third thing. Uh, I mean, it's all kind of uh, all in the same wheelhouse. Um, as I said, any any anything more specific than that, and you're getting into genre navel gazing. So. Okay. Okay. We'll try to try to avoid that. But um, and t- at Mutech 2002, Villa Lobos participated in a festival-ending laptop jam, which is a new phenomenon uh, coming along with people able to play music and having the new software on their laptops. And Sherburn from The Wire calls it something akin to the birth of house music or the very first scratch, the moment when microhouse became minimal. I think Sherburn's kind of inflating the importance of what he's documenting a tiny bit, maybe. Well, again, it's all very exciting when you're in it and and you you see a scene kind of come up around it and a lot of appreciation for it. And the big question is if 15 to 20 years later, it still has kind of its same cachet. And, and, you know, I remember the first time we talked about Micro House, not even really recognizing what it all was. But that's just because at this point, it's kind of being it's being rebranded as something else. Once again, like the Micro House sound is now more traditionally referred to as uh, as melodic techno and uh, minimal is still minimal. But, uh, you know, what was considered minimal suddenly starts to be considered something else. So it's it's funny how it's like a moving dartboard all the time, what things are being defined at and how it fits into whatever's hot at the moment and what it was beforehand. Yeah, and then he does, he wraps this section with a little bit more data on the growth of Berlin. And he talks about what they call the easy jet set, which is people that fly in all over, from all over Europe and all over the world to go to Berlin on the weekends. And he says the Schoenenfeld Airport which was the main airport for the discount airlines there, went from 1.7 million passengers in 2003 to 6.3 million in 2007. I don't think you can attribute all of that to the success of minimal techno, but definitely uh, the scene is, is playing a part to make Berlin uh, much more... Um, you know, growing and vibrant and alive. And then I know I think this is the perfect time to put in our next song. Uh, this is Steve Aoki's Helicopter, which is a, a, a remix or a cover of Block Party, and it's from 2007. He's gonna save the world. He's gonna, he's gonna save the world. 
helicopter it's a block party cover by steve aoki that was on one of his early mixes from 2007 right around when he started switching his label from uh kind of indie dance and punk rock and stuff like that into dance music so it's kind of fitting that they mashed together in this one i picked it because we're just about to head to seattle and start talking about uh, everything that was going on there and the beginning of indie dance music kind of fusing with electronic dance music for the first time in a uh, god and god knows maybe the first time ever uh, for this for this for the purposes of this i'd I'd say since the early 80s i think the b-52s talking heads esg uh, along with the british synth bop order etc etc there was a period when the the indie but it was new wave at the time scene and dance music were really synced and and they come back together in the early 2000s and seattle's an interesting choice like when he first switches to seattle and like why is he checking in with Seattle? And he sort of does just a roundup of what's going on in Seattle. Uh, talks about the promoter USC that was drawn up to 10,000 people for their raves. Um, that, that also their um, people are having candy raves in the NAF studio, which is a famous Seattle rocker rehearsal space. Bands like Queensryche and Soundgarden had rehearsed there. So they started hosting um, candy ravers events up to October 2002, and Organic was their final party there. There were also the Tasty Shows with promoters Alex Calderwood and Gerald Harler doing kind of upscale stuff. They opened the ARO space on Capitol Hill and what used to be the Rock Dump Moe's. Sleek, ultra-modern, high-design club. Um, Fourth City had a big laptop battle in January 2002. The Destival Festival in September 2004 drew 2,500 people. Uh, Sean Horton was a DJ and promoter from Detroit who moved to Seattle. He was inspired by what he saw at Mutech 2002 to put on the Destival Festival. And then it gets to kind of what I think the reason he's zeroed in on Seattle was that um, Ben Gibson, who's the singer for Death Cab for Cutie, which is a 90s sub-pop indie band, he contributed a vocal on IDM producer Dentel's uh, third album, Life is Full of Possibilities. And Dentel is also Jim, Jimmy Tamborello. And uh, the song in particular was This is the Dream of Evan and Sean. That ended up getting remixed by Super Pitcher from Compact Records. And then that went so well that Gibson and Tamborello form a group together called The Postal Service. Their album, Give Up, from 2003, ends up being Sub Pop's bestseller since Bleach by Nirvana. So this was pretty big doings at the time. It even penetrated my very square consciousness. Yeah, that's very much like uh, electronic music getting a little taste in on the side of that grunge wave. Or the post-post-grunge wave, I'd say. that. that was- yeah, I guess by 2003. You're right, you're right. Shows what I know about grunge. <laughs> yeah, grunge was... Grunge was good and dead by this point but um but yeah the post post grunge indie world was going strong and 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 puzzle service is definitely a dance friendly version of it um then it gets back to daft punk and also talks about ed banker records um that uh um and switches this guy tom windish who's a booking agent who took a rocker friend to the first coachella where they saw autotecker and sahara tent and um 
they had Velo Verkhouse running visuals in the Sahara tent in 2002 and 2003. And Daft Punk had been their number one target to book there for years and years, but they hadn't hadn't gotten them. And Daft Punk hadn't had a big U.S. hit. But Matos talks to some people who quote, he quotes as saying things like, they were selling 3,000 records a week. I assume they mean CDs. It was just consistent forever. So they didn't have a big massive breakthrough hit, but they were steadily building an audience and steadily selling. This is as shocking to me as when we found out that Hey Yeah by Outkast didn't do numbers because uh, Music Sounds Better With You by Stardust and a couple of those other like Daft Punk uh, uh, kind of, uh, they, they were they were the guys behind it, but they didn't put their name on it. Like some of those tracks were just so massive and it just shocks me that that none of these tracks were, 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 were sitting number one on the charts considering how much they were just inex- inescapable on the radio or on much music or, or MTV as it's called in America. Yeah, it was definitely. I mean, I, I couldn't avoid it, but it was it was bombs over Baghdad by Outkast, not Hey Ya. Hey Ya was an undeniable, massive number one hit. It might have been a number three hit, but anyway, it was a massive, massive pop success. Um, but yeah, bombs over Baghdad was also the seismic impact, and we discovered last week it, was, it didn't even chart R and B, which is crazy. Um, wow. Yeah, but Discovery, the two thousand one Daft Punk album, is no more. Is not filter disco. It's it's a whole new thing. Matos actually uh, gets kind of waxes rhapsodic on this. So I'm going to quote him. I don't quote him doing rock critic stuff very much, but he says, every shimmering surface conjured an oral utopia that offset and deepened the duo's knowingness, demanding you be swept away if you were a fan, in on the joke if you were a skeptic, and both if you were paying any attention at all. So it was house music with the sweep of classic pop and, and had multiple guests vocalists like Rome Anthony, a.k.a. Anthony Moore on One More Time and Too Long, and also Todd Edwards on Face to Face, Todd Edwards that we know best as a producer and DJ. But they didn't tour on the back of that. And their manager, Pedro Winter, um, got so bored with nothing to do on the Daft Punk account that he found Ed Banger Records in 2003. And his big track there is this We Are Your Friends by Justice Versus Simeon. Uh, which came out in 2003. And Justice was Parisians Gaspard Aug and Xavier de Rosne. Apologies for butchering the name. Simeon was a bunch of UK indie rockers who had had um, uh, a song that then Justice remixed and they put it out as Justice versus Simeon. So it was, and it was a massive song. Again, that was one that also crossed my path. But then Un- Daft- inescapable is the right word for it, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was it was all over the place, and I wasn't even trying to find stuff, but just you couldn't even get on the internet in that year without becoming aware of it. But then he kind of disses uh, Daft Punk's 2005 album, their third album, Human After All, which he says lacked ideas, sonics, grooves, and feeling. Ouch! So kind of uh, people people didn't get Human After All until after the Pyramid tour. Everybody is still pretty disrespectful of the album, which is really like it's more of a collection of DJ weapons, and it was created quick and dirty for that express purpose. Uh, but once you hear the tracks live, mixed in with other Daft Punk tracks, then Human After All makes a lot more sense. And and, and listening to everything that comes after it uh, musically, just in in the overall electronic dance music sphere, there's no denying it clearly influenced like so many producers who embraced the unapologetically harsh production qualities of Human After All that that gets it uh, so much criticism here. Mm, ouch! But then he switches to talk about Herb Magazine, which is a Los Angeles publication. Josh Glazer is his kind of main figure that he, that he follows through this. Glazer had been writing for Motor um, and 
that shut down in September 2002. And so Herb was left as the only magazine, quote, seriously writing about the culture. Scott Sterling was his assignment editor there. Raymond Roker was the owner. Um, it first hit the national newsstands in 1997. And by 2003, the scene in L.A. was, quote, totally fucking dead with clubs playing top 40 in hip hop and bottle services coming in. Now, we talked about bottle service last time. What is so dire about bottle service exactly? Uh, it's basically just the idea that you're getting a booth and you're getting a bottle and it's designed to just suck money out of people. So it brings in another, uh, a, a different kind of clientele that's there to be seen at the VIP table behind the DJ booth with their bottles and uh, rather than, than, than people being on the dance floor dancing. So it's, it's a shift in the, the kind of participation that's going on a club, which is why it's, uh, why it's kind of viewed so, so negatively. And it's a, it is a shift in the, the economic ability of people to kind of elevate themselves above others. So it creates this new strata inside the club that was kind of gross too. But uh, before we continue, we got to establish uh, ourselves a commercial break with our sponsors and our economic needs. So yeah, bottle service was invading LA and so were uh, celebrity turned DJs. And that's uh, a bit another big controversial subject that uh, I'm sure you've got you've got some thoughts on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it starts out innocuous enough, I guess. You got people like Heidi Slomane, the designer, John Cameron Mitchell, the actor, director, creator of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Carlos D of Interpol. Um, and, and the rule of thumb was no beat matching and no electronic dance music. So that's kind of an unusual, you know, you've got people DJing, but no electronic dance music. But then as uh, Trisha Romano said in the Village Voice, once Madonna did it, she guest DJ in October 22nd, 2005. Her producer, Stuart Price, did the actual DJ, but Madonna did put on some headphones and, and pretend to DJ for a bit. And Trisha Romano ID'd this as, it's a downhill slide to Paris Hilton from here, which turned out to be prophetic. Yeah. And, you know, uh, what they were doing at first, I mean, obviously there's always an element of snobbery towards uh, all of the kind of hipster stuff that's going on. You have to be hip with it to be able to even get into a lot of these places. But but as far as the, you know, the backlash against beat matching and transition focused DJing, to a degree, I think, it, you know, it kind of needed to be done because at a certain point, uh, it wasn't about the DJ playing what's best for the party. It's the DJ being boxed in by their genre or by the key of the song before or by the tempo. Uh, you know, DJing used to be about this exciting rise in energy that was beyond what a non-mixing DJ could create. But at some point, so many sets just turned into these two-hour monotone slogs. And if you wanted to reintroduce indie rock and new wave and punk and stuff into the mix you had to completely redefine what mixing was about and you had to violently reject the uh, what what all of the purists are saying about what mixing's all about once these hipsters burned it all down and started it from scratch then the best DJs amongst them started building it back up by figuring out how to actually mix the rolling stones into bowie into duran duran but there needed to be that reset and i've always said there's different rules for mixing different genres of music and they had to like establish their own kind of rule set in order to create this new uh, like indie dance DJ thing that actually worked. Yeah, and this is happening in a context in which Mato says that the new blood coming into dance music was coming from places that were not dance music. So the, the electroclass scene flattered the cult of the DJ and went back to more of an emphasis on live performers, people like Beaches, the Spooner Fisher that are putting on these, you know, over-the-top spectacles. And there was the Miss Shapes party that starts in New York in 2002, 
pretty lawless. They say the security was there for vanity purposes, but fundamentally, uh, Tommy Sunshine describes it as a bar with a lot of underage, coked-up kids having a really good time. So, yeah, we can't endorse this, but that's apparently what was happening. And also, a lot of digital paparazzi sites were emerging around this time, like last night's party, which launches in October 2004, and the Cobra Snake from L.A. launches in January 2004. They further spread and codify the Vice's hipster look and, again, the celebrity DJ thing. And then Steve Aoki comes in initially known as Kid Millionaire because his dad was the um, Rocky Aoki, the founder of Benihana Steakhouses. He was a regular at Miss Shapes, came from a hardcore punk, straight edge, do it yourself background, founded Den Mock Records in 1999, little martial arts touch, the death touch, Den Mock. Um, in 2004, he struck gold with the kills and block party. Also linked up with Vice's Atlantic Distributed Label, starts hosting Denmark parties in LA at the Cine Space in Hollywood, has rockers as DJs again, Chris D of Interpol, um, Nick Zinner of the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. And he says, all of a sudden we were the hipster kings of Hollywood, the LA contingent of what New York City was doing. It was just too it was justice and too many DJs leading the pack. And but then he says, within a couple of years, DJ AM and Aoki decided to switch the format to dance music and electros. That's Jason Bentley saying that. And um, we talked about Josh Glazer at, at Herb, and he wanted Herb to cover this stuff. And Roker, the owner, um, Raymond Roker, was very skeptical of this. Like, why do you want to put an indie rocker bass player on the cover of my dance music magazine? But he drags him down to Denmark. Roker sees what's happening, signs off, and sure enough, Carlos D is on the cover of Herb's uh, January-February 2005 issue, which brings us to another big thing that happens in the spring of 2005, YouTube launches. And one of the first EDM-relevant viral videos is a video of an August 20th, 2005 Provo, Utah event being shut down by um, stormtroopers and SWAT teams over the lack of a $100 legal gathering license. So they had millions of dollars in insurance. They had EMTs. They had everything except this one little permit. And the authority seized on that to, to crack down, you know, with the whole SWAT team thing. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting point to note that people were trying to go legit at this point in time, but the, you know, the, the local councils usually wouldn't let them either. They wouldn't tell them about the local gathering license or they would set it up in such a way that they're, you know, you had to apply for it, but they wouldn't give it to you. And uh, this was one of those stories that, that kind of came around and got everybody feeling really, really uncomfortable again. And it's the, the story of, uh, of why, like, so many of these rape promoters basically kind of realize that the moment they start, you know, being successful, uh, they're going to get shut down by the cops. So it's just a real, real unfortunate period of time to be trying to do a traditional rave. Uh, good time for all of these rockers in a in in legitimate bar venues to to kind of pick up the torch and 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 cross over. So, but uh, this is this is why you know on the rave side things are as always uh, really on the edge of complete collapse. Yeah, and it's also a good time for the rock festivals to jump in. So they start talking about Coachella 2006 at this point. And the thinking in the office was, look, Madonna wasn't cool last year. Madonna's not going to be cool next year. But right now Madonna is cool because she had a hit with Caught Up, which was on, quote, every hipster dance playlist. And so they booked her. Paul Ballett, Paul Tollett, the Coachella booker, had what they call old school reservations. Quote, he came from the 80s when you like Black Flag and Madonna's the enemy. But as Matos pointed out, the iPod had been out for four years by this point, and the tribes had been replaced by the shuffle. So I thought that was an interesting sort of big picture look at what the iPod and the iPod shuffle in particular had done to break down reservations about stuff. I mean, 
the scarcity when you could only buy a couple of records a week or months, and if you picked those, you were committed to them, that meant you weren't buying these other records and couldn't hear those. That had been kind of replaced by Napster and the iPod. When you could download MP3s of everything for free and then just put them on shuffle, they really did open people's minds musically. Yeah, and because you were on an iPod with your headphones and you could listen to, you know, Aqua right next to Black Flag, right next to Venga Boys, right next to, uh, you know, Richie Houghton. There was, there was no more policing of your embarrassing picks. So definitely there was, there was a, lot more, a lot more genre crossing going on than, than, than had been the norm beforehand where everybody kind of had to, you know, stay true to their, to their particular teams. Yeah, and so then, so they end up booking Madonna to headline the Sahara tent, which is the dance tent, not the main stage, but the Sahara tent. So that normally that tent had held twenty thousand people in previous fests. They expanded up to thirty thousand, and then they booked their Friday head headliner for the Sahara tent, and it's Daft Punk that they've been trying to get for years. They'd been offered him two hundred fifty thousand in previous years and couldn't get him, but they they upped their offer to three hundred thousand. Daft Punk took the bait, and um. They uh, spent their whole fee on production, demanded 25% of it in advance because they had something big coming up. And of course, as it turns out, it was big. But did you notice, and I, I could be wrong, but I think Matos had them um, on the Saturday night also. And that threw me into a, just a tailspin because I knew Madonna was at Saturday night. Then I had to go to Wikipedia and search around. And it turns out they were on the Friday night. So I think uh, Matos make one of his few mistakes there, possibly. Don't, if Michelangelo's listening, don't spank me if I'm wrong. Let me know if I'm wrong. Anyway, if they have, anyway that, I, I found that confusing. You know, this is probably the perfect time to play our third song of the episode, and it is Daft Punk's Robot Rock uh, going into Oh Yeah from the live 2007 show. And uh, it's just the perfect example of, of how two individual tracks can kind of fuse together, even in just the transition to create this like whole new energetic uh, experience. That's Robot Rock going into Oh Yeah from Daft Punk's Live 2007 album. Definitely an album that everybody should go and listen to. Uh, it's probably my favorite Daft Punk album because it just captures everything that's great about the group uh, and everything that's amazing about their live performance and why I think we're sitting here right now so many years later talking about how it changed electronic dance music forever. Yep, and we'll get to their, their set. But first, a couple more things about um, Coachella that year. They added Kanye West at the last minute to be on the Saturday night main stage. So he's going to be on the main stage while Daft Punk is in the uh, dance music tent. And then it switched back to David Prince, who's a promoter and, and DJ that we've uh, heard from many times during the book. Um, and he's back in Miami trying to start his own competitor, the M3 Summit, Miami Music Multimedia. It was an attempt to compete compete with the Winter Music Conference, which we've talked about in previous episodes that had just become a massive dance music industry blowout. And he's trying to have kind of a high-tech, high-minded summit that's introducing the new technologies and explaining how it's going to impact music. 
Meanwhile, the Ultra Music Festival launches. It's just a one-night thing that draws local Miami teams. And by 2006, it's drawing 30,000 people. Kind of blows M3 out of the water. And then it talks about how Prince was spooked by the gangster element, that he reached a certain level of the business where he's having to deal with the big-time drug dealers and other people behind the scenes and didn't really like it. Why did... I mean, other than that he uses Prince as a first-person reporter from Coachella, why did he sneak that in here? I figure it's probably just another touch to step in and, and show what's going on in Miami, which is one of the most important cities as far as, you know, the evolution of of what's going on with EDM in, in North America. Like Michelangelo Matos talks about this is in, in, an, in an interview where the, the idea for this book to come together was he was invited down to the Winter Music Conference as part of this, uh, this kind of journalistic uh, package thing. Like, they, like him and a bunch of other journalists were bussed in to, to, uh, to attend a couple of conferences and stuff like that. And he kind of realized that, that, you know, the Winter Music Conference is, is showing that, that things are transforming and things are getting big. And so I think, uh, you know, he's just trying to kind of remind people that Miami, big things are brewing here. Ultra was, uh, not only was the Winter Music Conference for many years like an important staple, but it was the first spot where everything started to explore, uh, explode. Ultra was one of the first big, you know, EDM as it's considered now, music festivals where it was uh, catering more to uh, mainstream electronic music fans than maybe the underground. Yeah, and I think the thing, the the big shift is the age of at the age and numbers of the fans. Like suddenly, there's a whole new younger generation that comes into EDM. It's a massive generation, and and EDM is the dominant genre in that generation. So that's the big switch. It's a, it's a new generation, and EDM has a different place within their musical favorites. I'm much more like England in the '90s, where EDM, you know wasn't EDM then, but hardcore and jungle, et cetera, are the dominant musical genre. Even though you've got Britpop and other things competing, the the dance music was at the center of things. And that's what happens in the States. I just feel like it's the walls fell down finally for so long. If you were a rock person or, or, or any of the, or hip hop or anything else like that, you know, there was these walls up and electronic music was this other strange thing that was kind of uncool. But all of a sudden now, of course, like it doesn't matter. Like if you're, if you're into any of those other, other music styles, you'll still go out to a festival and have an amazing time. You'll still go out to a club and listen to a DJ. It's no longer uh, verboten, you know, and it's and it's more accepting because, again, we've hit that shuffle era and and every every everybody is into everything now. It's all coming in as MP3s. In the 90s, a lot of American fans, I think, had their rock and their hip hop on CD or cassette and you could only get the dance music on 12 inches. So that automatically made it this sort of subcultural thing. But then they talk about the, the Daft Punk show. Opens with the Close Encounters theme, then the pyramid lowers from the sky. They, they debut this 3D projection mapping video technology that's that's totally ahead of its time and works. And I think that's why he talked about Richie Houghton's attempts to do something similar with Plastic Man a couple of years earlier that wasn't quite ready. Now the stuff is ready, and it just blows people away. And then there's this great quote Matos has. It says, all the tastemakers were at Coachella. They had thought rave music was dirty and gross, and they were finally able to put dance music together with the visual element that was apparently so important. They were finally able to see what everybody else had been seeing the whole time. They made it cool. So, yeah, I think Daft Punk at that show was just undeniable. I mean, it had the visual element. They were clearly stars. And their set was brilliant. They're mixing 
like you say, they're mixing their record as raw materials and mixing it, making it come alive at the hands of the DJs, but they're not doing the old Moby, you know, put the dad in and hit play. They're actually live mixing and responding to the crowd and everything. And so the net effect is that they blow Madonna away. Madonna plays the next night at the Sahara set and it's pretty anticlimactic six song set. And um, Kanye West has a, has a big night. Um, on the main stage, but the print media focuses in the immediate aftermath. Some of the coverage, like Pitchfork and some other things, mentioned Daft Punk or covered Daft Punk, but most of the print media, Rolling Stone and Spin, et cetera, they focused on Madonna and Kanye and kind of missed the story. And we'll take one more detour and then we'll wrap up with with the rest of the story. But then he then he segues to back to the Detroit Electronic Music Festival and, and he talks about the 2002 iteration which last time we checked in, Carl Craig had been fired the second year uh, of the festival. And so then they bring in a whole committee with like Juan Atkins and Eddie Folks and Alan Oldman and Derek May. Then Derek May spent two years kind of trying to run it. And and apparently Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, who later goes to prison on a number of, of corruption charges, apparently stiffed Derek May and, and just the city wasn't coming through with the money and, and may put $450,000 of his own money into it, even borrowed $86,000 from a rich uncle to uh, keep things going. And then he has some sharp words to say about Kwame Kilpatrick, you know? Yeah. Well, this, the city of Detroit, um, it's, uh, you, you couldn't do a better job of trying to kill something if you tried. And it doesn't seem like they were trying to, it just seems like, you know, business as usual when it comes to a dysfunctional government entity where, you know, uh, Maybe four months before the actual date of the event, they would finally give the go ahead for the next year instead of immediately after, you know, the success of the year prior. They just say, OK, this is going ahead and let's let's go ahead and do this. They would wait until, you know, a couple months beforehand, which obviously makes it difficult to, to book artists, makes it difficult to like plan anything. Uh, and it was just a, a big a big mess on the city side. And it's surprising that it managed to go uh, year after year without without a year off because. Uh, pop culture media who who started it, they got a three-year contract to organize Demp. And a week before the second one, they fire Carl Craig and and that's a big mess. They bring on, on a council for the third year, but after those three years, their contract doesn't get renewed because of all the negative energy surrounding that Carl Craig situation. 2003, 2004, Derek May's in charge and he's having to po- like, like pull out of pocket for the whole thing. 2005, Kevin Saunderson does the same thing and loses a whack. So it's a, it's just a big old, it's a big old mess until 2006 when Paxahow, who helped Kevin Saunderson on, on 2005's edition, kind of steps in and, and, and just ex- expects nothing from the city and, and builds small and grows, grows it big to the point where it's now kind of stable again. Yeah, and they start charging admission, and they change the name to Movement in 2003. And then he switches back to the aftermath of the Coachella show and talks about the Coachella set on YouTube and how, um, you know, David Prince, for example, has a blog, The Daily Swarm, that's one of these – there was just suddenly a ton of professional music blogs and Daily Swarm is one of them. And he notices that Daft Punk is responsible for the majority of his traffic. So he turns the site Daily Swarm into Daft Punk Central. And there are, you know, tons of, of uploads of the video video from that set at Coachella's on YouTube. And that becomes, you know, a super popular video on YouTube. Then they do an arena tour of the U.S. in 2007. Unfortunately, they fire their longtime booking agent, Jerry Girard, uh, 
replacing with creative artists, CAA, whatever, the, the Hollywood mega agency. Uh, they wanted to finance their movie, Electroma, so they had to sign with CAA and end up dumping their longtime booking agent for that. And then Kanye West ends up sampling Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger in his song Stronger, which goes to number one, and it's on his album Graduation that goes to double platinum, and it's just this sort of mainstay. Uh, I mean, to me, the way I hear millennials talking about Kanye's run of great albums it's pretty much like the beatles or the rolling stones like it's this run of incredible albums that seems to mean the world to people in that generation so it's big doings to be on a kanye west album in this period and also kanye talks about daft punk in interviews and other places in the same category as other artists he finds inspirational like madonna and u2 and the rolling stones and the net effect of the the stronger being such a big hit is that downloads of harder better faster stronger by daft punk jump jump like by a factor of five or a factor of seven. So it really kind of carries them into the mainstream of, of, of American pop music. And then, then he kind of wraps the chapter with uh, this little... Uh, you know what? Sorry, one last thing. Let's go for one more musical break. And uh, this here is Justice Dance. And it's uh, the perfect kind of culmination of the sound that came out of that Daft Punk Human After All album and what Steve Aoki was doing to bring, you know, rock music and dance music together. Justice is pretty much the distillation of that. And this is one of their big hits, Dance. So that was Justice's Dance, and that was my first attempt at running all of the uh, the, the music choices and the uh, the promos and everything else like that. What do you think? How did I do? Yeah, I think you did okay. Kind of, uh, you know, emasculated me, but otherwise, uh, you know, did, did your part excellently. Yeah, I had some technical issues, so Ryan had to step in and run the show today. But then Matos wraps the chapter with a little look at Justice and what he calls the children of Daft Punk. And he, and he talks about how Daft Punk had been influenced by Chicago House and Detroit Techno, but that Justice had been influenced by Daft Punk. And this new generation of kids, they weren't aware of, of the way back roots, you know, in the 70s and 80s to this stuff. They were just aware of the 90s roots and, and carry it on. And then Josh Glazer talks about the immediate ripple effect of the Daft Punk Coachella show and hits like Dance by Justice in, their, in the wake that everybody went from playing Snoop Dogg Cure mashups to playing Bonky Electro. And um, so is this era of Daft Punk what you would call Bonky Electro? I mean, kind of. I mean, the whole thing is Daft Punk comes in and basically creates French Touch, which is also, you know, a lot of uh, kind of filtered disco house. And then they add a lot more electro or, you know, the first album still had a lot of electro elements into it, but they drive that electro sound and French Touch becomes tired and electro comes in and, and takes over big and electro fits over guitars and indie music really well. So all of a sudden you have all of this electro dance uh, coming out and it all gets kind of run into the ground too. So, you know, bonky electro, I don't know, but elect like electro in general, this is, this is, 
2006 onwards, we definitely run electro into the ground, but it has a lot of good years and it has a lot of good sounds. And as, as the book kind of mentioned, uh, uh, these new people are influenced by Daft Punk, but they don't go much further back. So a lot of that retro gets left behind and there's some new interesting stuff that's going on. That's, you know, that's definitely worth, worth keeping when we look back on electro and, and say maybe, you know, this and that's tired, but there's a lot of good stuff to really like. Yeah, and he also ties back in and talks about how Steve Aoki became the Johnny Appleseed of mainstreaming DJing. And so, you know, this rock guy becomes a DJ and then ends up popularizing DJing uh, to a whole new generation and much more mainstream than it had ever been in the past. Talks about uh, Justice Breaking Big with Dance that you had just played, and that's D-A-N-C-E, all capitals with periods between the letters. And then David Prince sees them at their 2007 Coachella set, and he happens to catch two Frenchmen, a tall one and a short one, uh, just quietly in the crowd with nobody noticing who they are because they don't have their robot helmets on. It's Bangalter and Guy Man just passing unrecognized. Which I think is important to work in because I think Daft Punk's decision to disguise themselves is really one of the smartest plays as far as dealing with massive fame. I mean, here they are. They can take their masks off and walk through the crowd unrecognized, you know, and avoid the fate of so many celebrities who crash and burn in fame. It was a def- definitely smart. They wanted to be big, but they also recognized that fame is a monster and uh, they got the best of both worlds. Yep. So. You know, can't argue with that. And that's it for our chapter on Coachella 2006. Um, Nate Wilcox and for Ryan Harkness, we've been discussing The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. And so it has now finally conquered America. We just have a couple chapters left. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas, Nevada, June 24th to 26th, 2011. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate talk about the 2011 Electric Daisy Carnival, EDM's run atop the pop charts, and the rise of dubstep. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.